before I start, I just wanted to um, give you a recap of my experience. My experience at this uh, at this retreat so far. Um, oh, actually, from from last uh, time I was standing up here. Um, one, I am I'm exhausted. Not because I did so much, but because I played for like three minutes that ball game. Oh my goodness. Like I, I'm, I'm not in the best health. And that, that was the first time I think I ran in like years. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, my, my lungs are like, hey, you know, you need to calm down. My heart's, my, I have a, my heart's still like up at like 300 <laughs> beats per minute. And so I'm, yeah, I'm exhausted. But um, you know what? It's, it's actually really great. It's great to be here. It's great to see you guys. And you guys are actually a really fun group of people. It's actually really fun to spend time with each and every single one of you. And um, just uh, not just spending time with you, but seeing you guys interacting together has, is, is amazing. There isn't this like, there's a little bit of banter, you know, hey, you're, you're an idiot, you know, you suck, uh, you know, our team's gonna win and stuff like that. But um, there's mutual encouragement. There's, I see you guys take each other uh, aside and talk to each other about, about things and just encouraging one another and yeah, it's, it's, it's great to see. I encourage you to continue to do that. Um, um, and um, I didn't join you for that uh, discussion time. Um, but I encourage you, tomorrow there's going to be one more. And it's the same topics. That means you will have had two chances. Two chances to have gone to two, of the, two out of three of those seminars or discussion groups. You know what's bad about that? There's one you miss, right? There's one you miss. But I thought about this and I have a solution. You know, after you attend two of these, um, the one you missed, go and talk to your brothers and sisters here and go, hey, did you, did you go to that one that I missed? And then ask them, what did you learn? And receive, learn, speak, uh, you know, encourage one another, build one another up. Uh, a retreat like this is not primarily the guest speaker that impacts the people. Retreats like this, the most impact is going to come from your brothers and sisters. You know, I only have a, a very short period of time when I can speak to you guys, but the rest of the retreat... When you guys are playing games, when you guys are at the beach, when you guys are, you know, not sleeping. During that time, you guys can build one another up. Have fun. Have fun, but at the same time, encourage each other. Build one another up. I encourage you also, um, it's near the end of the day and you guys have to get ready for tonight. So the temptation is going to be to, you know, kind of pray. Um, and once again, if... If you, um, if you hear somebody snoring next to you, you know, nudge them. And you know what? Encourage, I encourage you, try and stay awake. For this one, try and stay awake. Uh, I think there's uh, something God wants to speak to you right now. And it's um, hopefully through this, through this passage, through this message. And so let's read the passage. It comes from Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Exodus, the second book of the Bible. Um, chapter 19 comes after chapter 18. Uh, uh, verses 1 through 6. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. And this is the word of God. On the third new moon... After the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. 
the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that um, you have brought us into this, this place that you have given us a time when we could regroup, that we could prepare for the fight ahead. And Lord, as we spend this night worshiping you, listening to your word, Lord, I pray that your presence would be in this place, that your spirit would move in our hearts, that you would teach us, speak to us the truth. Give us your wisdom. Lord, let us know what it means what it means to be holy. Lord, teach us today. May I become less, may you become more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, just a recap. Um, there's, what is the name of God? What is the name of God? The, the name of God that uh, is revealed to Moses in the burning bush in the wilderness, around this area, he uh, God reveals to himself and he says, he says this interesting phrase, I am the I am. Tell them I am has sent you. In, let me demonstrate the impact of that name just uh, later in the Bible. In, later in the Bible, in Revelation, when you get to Revelation, um, we think of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and it's, you know, it's a bit cryptic. Um, whenever I had a sleepover at church, our, uh, our teachers would read us Revelation as if it was a horror story. You know, as if it was a ghost story. It's like, and then he broke the first seal. And, uh, you know, as a kid, I didn't know what that meant. I literally imagined a statue of a seal. Or, or, or. And he was breaking. I was like, I don't know why it's a seal, but, you know, it's Revelation, right? And I imagined this, and I remember thinking, wow, it's scary. The moon turns to blood, and, you know, all these locusts come out, and they're weirdly shaped. And all these things, I, I, I hear it, and I remember thinking, this is a scary story. But the more and more I, I grew up, the more and more I realized the story of Revelation is that we win. And Revelation is written in a period when the, uh, the, when John, the writer of the Bible, uh, of Revelation, there is the Revelation of John, uh, when he writes that, uh, that book, what is he going through? He's, he's, he's been exiled to the island of Patmos. The people, of, uh, the people, the church is persecuted. There's a danger that the church is going to be destroyed. And if you... Look at that context. You can understand what is the purpose of John writing this book. His purpose for writing Revelation is to encourage you. To encourage Christians who are going to face persecution. To stand. To remain in the faith. And here's what's interesting about the name. Because what it does is uh, in, um, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4. John encounters Jesus. He's standing before Jesus. And what Jesus says to him is, I am the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. In that order. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, or he says, he says, from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Okay, from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And it's significant because of that order. Because if you look, uh, you know, when I studied the book in the original language, in, in the ancient Greek, when I read it, I remember seeing this. There's a typo. No, no, there's a gram grammatical mistake. That word from 
is always followed by a certain form of the word. But he used a different form. The one who was, uh, who is, who was and who is to come. When you look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, when you look at that passage in, in Exodus, what you see is when God says to him, the one, you know, I am the I am, tell them I am has sent you. He doesn't say I am, I am in the Greek. In the Hebrew, he says I am, I am. But in the Greek, he says something different. He says, I am the one who is. Tell them the one who is, is coming. Or has sent you. The one who is. And if you look at the reference in that verse, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, it points to that verse. When John is using that passage, when, he's, when Jesus is using that name for John, what he's saying is, I am. I am the I am. Jesus is saying, the one who is, is me. But not just that. It's as we look at Revelation, he goes, I am the one who is, but also, I am the one who was. And if you look at all the books of the Bible up to that point, you can see how God was faithful. You can see how he was working in his people. And that is his name. He is. He was. And if we know that, he is to come. We can be confident that he will be who he will be. And that should strengthen us. That is his name. And, and then um, the next passage we looked at, we looked at the Passover lamb, and we looked at how much God loves us by looking at the cost, the great cost to himself. The great cost he paid by giving his son. For most of you here, um, uh, you know, when, when I was single and I wasn't married, I didn't have kids, I always looked at, you know, the cross and I always said, oh, you know, to, to um, Jesus paid so much on the cross for me. It was such a sacrifice for Jesus. But when I had kids, suddenly, suddenly something changed. Suddenly I empathized with the father. Sure, Jesus, no, you know, Jesus sacrificed himself. He gave a lot. But it meant, meant something bigger, that the Father gave His only Son. God loves us so much that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will live forever. That is, that is the gospel, right? But today, as we look at this passage, um, I said that the pinnacle of uh, was in um, of Exodus was in that um, in the Passover, right? No, I think it's this verse. I think it culminates in this verse. I think there's a the if if you look at Exodus as a chiasm as this um, symmetrical book. This is the pinnacle. This is when everything changes. Because God makes a covenant with his people. I have, a, a, you know, growing up, I had one older brother who was a year older than me. And then I had a younger sister who was a year younger than me. I had another sister, but she came way later. But the three, three of us, we grew up together. And we were those latchkey kids. We, we didn't have our parents home, so we would come home from school and we'd do things all by ourselves. Um, we've learned very quickly how to cook, cook uh, our ramen, ramen noodles, uh, instant noodles, um, and very quickly how to cook um, eggs. I mastered eggs very young, right? Scrambled eggs, and then eventually, you know, yeah. There's only one kind of egg I can't do yet, 
but I'm working on it, right? But it's, it's this amazing uh, skill. You can imagine somebody who's six years old, you know, cooking at a stove is very dangerous, right? But we, we had mastered it. And as we mastered it, we realized only one of us needs to cook. And so what did we do? We would try and get our brothers and sisters to cook for us. And my brother was the best at this. Because he would say this line, and for some reason, it was enough. He would say, can you cook me a ramen? And I would say, no. And he would go, come on. I'm like, no. And then he would say this amazing line. I'll be your best friend. And I remember going, oh, yeah. Wow, my brother will be my best friend. He's so cool. He's my older brother. Yeah, okay. And I would make it for him. You know what's funny? A few, few days later, he'd be like, make me ramen. Can you make me ramen? And I'd be like, no. And be like, come on. Like, no. And then he'll say this line again. I'll be your best friend. And what will I say? No, you're already my best friend, right? And he'd be like, I'm not anymore if you don't make me ramen. So what do I do? I make him ramen. And we did this for many, many years. And, you know, uh, best friend for life, right? Um, That's, you, you, you make these promises to one another. You make these promises of, uh, that make you re- relationally bound to one another. And those relationships, that those, those promises, mean something. You know, when you enter into a new job, when you enter into a new job, you, you sign a contract. And that contract binds your relationship as an employee. When you, when you get married, you know, you sign a contract. And when you sign that contract, when you make your vows, you are bound in a relationship, a covenant relationship with this person, a relationship that is different, that is different from other people. You know, my sister and I, because, you know, growing up, guess what I used to say to her? I'll be your best friend. And to this day, we're still, you know, she's still my best friend, right? No, what binds us? What, what binds us? We have this covenant relationship. A relationship that is not just based on, you know, how I feel towards you. It's not just based on how, how you look today, how you treat me today. There's this covenant relationship that is deeper. That is deeper than just, you know, our feelings. You are in a relationship with God. You are in a relationship with God. And here's the thing. It's different. It's different from other relationships. When, um, when you look at this passage, um, there's a, there's this, the, God is saying something. He's preparing the people as He's making a covenant with them. And what's, what, what's after chapter 19? What's after chapter 19? Anybody know what's after chapter 19? The Ten Commandments. I was looking for 20, chapter 20, but yes, it's the Ten Commandments. It's the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting about the Ten Commandments is when you think about the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is you shall not have any other gods before me, right? And that's how chapter 20 starts? No. How does it start? It starts by God presenting His status to you. His status to the people of Israel. What is His status? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt through many signs and wonders. This is how He starts. And that formula is a very well-known formula for, guess what? A covenant. God is making a covenant with His people Israel. 
when he gives them the Ten Commandments. Our relationship. Today I want to talk about what it means to be in a relationship with God. I want to talk about what it means to be holy. In, um, in, um, uh, in Catholicism and uh, in Orthodox traditions of the faith, of Christianity, uh, there are these things called saints. And I think this I think this is a great idea. Okay, hear me out. Hear me out. We don't, we don't necessarily do this in the Protestant faith, but this is, this is a great idea. They pray to the saints. Did you know this? Did you know this? There's the, the um, Catholics and uh, Orthodox people, when they pray, they pray to the saints. They go to the saints and they pray to these saints and they say to the saints, hey, can you, can you pray for me? Because I don't, because I've sinned, I don't think I should go to God, personally. And so what do I do? I'm going to go to a saint. And you're going to go to, a, they're going to go to these people called saints. And what makes someone a saint? They have to be canonized. They have to have done certain miracles. But what makes them saints is how exceptionally righteous they are. Compared to all the other people in the world, saints are righteous people. If they are painted in, in medieval paintings, in Renaissance paintings, what do these saints have around their head? They have a halo. That's what a halo looks like, or sounds like. That's what I always hear when I see a painting of a person with a halo. I have no idea why, but that's what I hear. And they're so holy that they have an aura about them. And people respect them. People pray to them. People ask them to pray for... Because why? They're so holy. They're so righteous that they can go to God themselves. They can go to God and they have such a wealth of merit, a wealth of goodness in them, that they can go to God and go, Hey God, I'm so good. I have so much. That these sinners, when they pray to you, they ask me, Hey, can you... Can you I want to give some of my merit to them. Now, I hope, I hope that most of you here, all of you here are like, That doesn't sound right. Right? That doesn't sound right. As a Christian, is that right? What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? The tenet is actually right. The problem is the understanding of what it means to be holy. What is a saint? When you see the saint written in the Bible, we see the word saint, we think of the word things, words like sanctified, right? What we don't think about is saint and holy are the same root words. A saint is a holy one in the Bible. In the original language, when you see saint, you see a holy one. One who is holy. When you hear about sanctification, it's somebody being holy or becoming holy. When we think about what it means to be a saint, what we don't realize is that status of being a saint in the Bible, in the New Testament, when it talks about somebody who is a saint. Who's a saint? Believers. Those in the covenant community of God. People who Jesus died for. Think about it. What makes you righteous? What makes you righteous? It's the blood of Christ. What makes you more righteous than someone else? The blood of Christ. So if you are forgiven your sins and somebody next to you is forgiven their sins, 
Both of them have the same status as righteous before God. You are holy. You are holy. When you think about, uh, when you think about God being holy, there's a, a something about Him being so good, so great, so amazing. But there are things in the Bible that objects and people who are considered holy. And whenever you see those things as being holy, you'll notice this detail. Something is holy. It's set apart. Too many of us, when we think about this exodus, it, 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 for many of us, we think of it too flippantly. Because when we think about exodus, we think, oh, you know, I shouldn't be a part of this world. You know, I'll do my, I'll, you know, retreat. And, but it's actually really hard. Think about it. What are you doing? What are you talking about when you talk about exodus? You're talking about leaving. Leaving a, 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 a culture. A culture that all your friends are, are bound to. And when we think about these, this exodus, for many of us, we, what we don't realize is it's, it's hard. We look at the world around us and the world around us is amazing. The world around us is tempting. You know, people go and they drink and they look like they're having fun. People go and do drugs and they look like they're having fun. People go around and make a lot of money. They post their pictures on Instagram. You know, they, they uh, modify their faces and they do all these things so that they look beautiful and they do all these things and it looks good, right? Then why? Why should we exit that? Why should we avoid a, a culture like that? Everything seems so fun. Everything seems so good. It's all about not what you're exiting from. It's about where you're exiting to. If the room is on fire, if the room is on fire, do you see that sign? That sign becomes very important. If the room is on fire, the room is filled with smoke and, you know, we're all coughing and stuff. Guess what the most important sign in this room is? It's the time schedule right in the back. No, it's that sign. That's what you're going to look for. That's, you're going to go, I need to exit. Why? Because outside is fresh air. Outside is salvation. Outside is, 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 is it, you know, it's not fire, not destruction, not death. It's a diff completely different story if outside there's a pack of wolves or, you know, bear, you know, I don't know why there would be, or drop bears, you know, I'm trying to think Australian. You know, it's a completely different story. You know, if there was a huntsman outside and this room was on fire, I'd be like, ooh, tough choice, tough choice, you know? It's about where you're exiting to. What you don't realize is this world seems like it's having fun, but there's no substance. It's just a temporary pleasure. And it means nothing. Modify your face so that you're beautiful. But guess what? Age is going to catch up to you. Work out. Become amazing and buff and athletic. Guess what? Age will catch up to you. I'm not saying don't work out or look beautiful. That's, keep doing that. But know why. What's the purpose why? Know that it's not going to ultimately fulfill you. Why do you want to get a good job? Why do you want to make a lot of money? I wanted to uh, be a doctor so that I would make a lot of money. And when my parents, you know, anyone asked me why, why do you want to make a lot of money? 
My answer was, because my parents want me to make a lot of money. So, like, even if it means you're miserable, even if it means you're not following your calling, it's not a good enough reason. We pursue these things. We pursue the things of this world and it means nothing in the end. When you stand before God, you're not going to go before God and go, look, look at my bank account. Look at how rich I am. You know, how much, how much does it cost to get me into heaven? You're not going to go before God and look, go, oh, look at my beautiful face. You're not going to be like, whoa, guns, guns. You know, it's not going to work. Ultimately, what God's going to say is, what have you done with your life? What, does, what did you do with the life that I purchased by the blood of my son? It's not just about exiting from, it's really about exiting to. And you know what? When the world looks at us, they look at us and they, they don't see joy. The world looks at us and we look the same as them. The world looks at us and they go, hey, Christians, they're just like us. You know, they, they compromise when they need to compromise. They give up on their values when they need to give, when it'll, it'll serve them right. What does it mean to be holy? It means you're set apart. It means you're different. You know, in, um, in Matthew chapter 5, it talks about being salt and light of the world. And you know what? When, when you have something that is uh, a dish and you put salt in, here's something interesting. If you taste something and it tastes bland, what you don't do is put like three cups of salt onto it. Like you're eating lasagna and you go, oh, this is a bit bland. A cup of salt, that should do it. No, what happens if you do that? What do you taste? It becomes salt with a little bit of lasagna. Right? The salt overtakes. For many of us, we have stopped being salt. For many of us, we are just like this world. For many of us, we are so busy being Christians amongst ourselves. It's like a bunch of salt in one room. But when we go out into the world, that saltiness loses its saltiness. Salt without saltiness it's just sand. You know, you, you don't sprinkle sand. You know, uh, if you go to like um, Hyams Beach in uh, Sydney, around Sydney, Hyams Beach, most beautiful beach in the world. Yeah. Not in Melbourne, in Sydney. You take, you take some of that sand and you go, you, you hold some in your hand and you look at it and guess what it starts to look like? It starts to look at like Sugar or salt. And so it's a really funny prank to put it in somebody's salt shaker and let them mutter. Because it's not salt. It's sand. It does not taste good. It's not worth putting in your mouth. It's disgusting. It's not salt. But that's what Christians are like in this world. When this world is you're so engrossed in this world, you're so uh, invested in this world, suddenly your life loses its saltiness. Light, light is amazing. Do you know, we, uh, I went into this uh, cave and we went deep into the cave and then at some point the tour guide turns off the light and he goes, what do you see? And people are like, oh, I see a little light over there and you know, I see something moving over there and he's like, you don't see anything. There's literally zero light in this room right now. So it's impossible to see anything. Your mind is playing tricks on you. But if a single person lights a, a, a candle, a tiny candle, 
it can never be so dark that that candle is overwhelmed by the darkness. Because of the property of light and darkness, darkness is absence of light. It's not that there's you know, this force called darkness that overtakes the It's the absence of light. And this world is a dark place. And unless you shine, this world will not know. Unless you shine and, and are different, the world will just be like, you're just one of us. But at the same time, a candle is super bright in the middle of a cave. It's beautiful. It shines. It reveals things all around us. But a candle in a well-lit room is almost invisible. If we're just Christians amongst other Christians, it means nothing. It has no power in a dark world. We need to learn to go and be Christians, be different, be holy. And not only that, our joy, the things that bring us joy need to be challenged. Because this world says, hey, we're having fun. You want to be like us. What they should see is, no, I want to join these Christians. I want to experience the joy that they experience. My brother uh, did a lot of bad things and he was heavily into drugs. And uh, he had a best friend. His best friend uh, grew up with him from elementary, primary school. And uh, adult, you know, um, I bring him to my youth group once, one day, one Friday. We come into our youth group, a small youth group, and it happened to be a team building night. So we just played a game that night. And this, this friend, he sat there and he played with us and he, he watched us. He was a bit older than everyone else, but you know, he, he enjoyed, enjoyed playing with us and things like that. At the end of the night, he sat, sat there by himself outside and it seemed like something was bothering him. So I, I, I came out of the um, church, church hall and I, I went to him and I was like, hey, you know, what's wrong? You know, he's, what's wrong? What, what, what's bothering you? And he goes, you know, whenever I hang out with your brother, uh, I'm always doing drugs. I'm always drinking, you know, that, that's what we do together. This is the first time I've seen a group of people, and these are young people, and these people are having fun. And what blows my mind is they're sober. It's like, how can you have so much fun without the use of drugs? And you know what's interesting? The more I look at it, it seems like you're having more fun than when I'm high on drugs. And this bothered him. And he's like, why? Why is it, why is it possible? How is it possible that you can have this kind of fun? For him, his whole life revolved around fun. His whole life revolved around you know, doing drugs, experiencing something. But he was still hungry. Well, he, he was still hungry, and it's sad because I've known him for so many years, and not once did I go, you should try this. Eat this. It will fill you up. We are holy. We are called to be different, and uh, I'm sorry, you know what? For me to end with just saying, be holy. Be holy is, is not good. You're not going to be able to. It's just going to be this works-based, constant trying to be a person that you are not. No, the un to understand what it means to be holy is to understand this. Whenever God says something in the Bible, if, if He says some, something or somebody is holy, other than Himself, whenever He says this, He says this. He always uses this. He goes... This is holy. 
This is holy to the Lord. Holy is being set apart. And we always think, when we think of holy, as set apart from something. Being set apart from this world. Being set apart from, uh, from all these things around. But that's not the point. The more important point is what you're set apart for. To understand what it means to be holy, it means that God is saying, this one, you, you are set apart from all of this world, from all the people in this world, you are set apart. You are different. I'm taking you out of this group of people and I'm making you mine. You are mine. This one's mine. When Satan says, all of these are mine, he says, no. This one, this one's mine. This one, I will pay for his sin. I will pay the punishment he deserves. I will give my blood so that this one will be mine. You belong to Christ. You belong to God. That is what it means to be holy. We do not act all and have the no, not because we're such good people. No, we're such good people. We try to be holy. We try to be good because we are already holy. We are already holy. Whenever I would put on my army uniform, as I. I would put it on, and I'd go outside. There was a standard of my actions in front of people. I couldn't go around and, you know, have my shirt tucked out. I couldn't have, like, you know, shoestrings hanging out. You know, I couldn't have, a, a, um, like, my goatee growing. You know, I couldn't have my hair all going crazy. I had to look a certain way. I had to act a certain way. Why? Because I represented the U.S. Army, whenever I wore that uniform. You belong to God. You are a light in this world. You are a salt in this world. You shine in the darkness. And it's not that you try and be something you're not. You try to be who you are. You act the way you're supposed to act. You focus on me. If I belong to God, then I owe Him my whole life. There's a scene in uh, Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan uh, is an amazing movie, war, World War II movie. And at the end of the movie, uh, spoiler alert, um, a group of people go in to save this Private Ryan. And when this group of people go in to save this Private Ryan, they pretty much die so that he can live. At the end of the movie, he goes and stands before uh, the, the gravestone of the captain of that group. And he goes and he cries in front of this, as an old man, he cries in front of this gravestone. And as his wife comes to comfort him, he says to his wife, tell me, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me. And she's like, why, why do you want me? He's like, just please tell me. Why did he want to hear that? Because they paid. They gave their life so he can live his life. They gave their life so that he can live not just a mediocre life. He owed his life to them. Jesus gave his life, not so that you can, you know, live and do whatever you want. Jesus gave his life so that you can be his. So that you can be loved by him. So that you can have purpose. Purpose greater than yourself. Do you know if you live for yourself at some point, if you're really successful, you actually reach what you want to achieve. If you're really successful, you become what you want to become. And when you reach that point, what do you realize? 
It's meaningless. What do I do next? If you live for God, if you live for God, you will always live with a greater purpose. You'll always live knowing that there's, there's more to do. There's greater purpose than just yourself. I talked about how uh, Catholics and Orthodox have, they have this practice of praying to saints. You don't have to pray to saints. I think it's a good practice to confess to saints, to ask saints to help you, to pray for you. And remember, what's the saint? It's the Holy One of God. It's someone that belongs to God. And guess what? How many saints are in this room? How many saints do we have in this room? How many people here belong to God? And so, make it a practice. It's, you know, when I see you guys playing, when I see you guys uh, communicating with one another, when when I see you guys uh, working together, it's it's this amazing uh, synergy, this amazing time that you guys have together. But, if you guys have that kind of relationship, go deeper. Ask each other, hey, can you pray for me? Can you go to God for me? Not because I don't have access to God. Because I'm a holy one of God too. I'm a saint as well. But, because you have another saint there, another holy one, that has access to God. Share your life with one another. Build one another up. Walk, encourage one another in the faith. When you look at this passage, it says, Thus you shall say to the house and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is after the ten plagues. This is after the parting of the Red Sea. And it's this amazing um, signs and wonders he's done. And then it says, And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Do you know what's interesting about that passage? For us, it just seems like, oh, he bore, it's a poetic language. But for the people who lived in Egypt all those years, when Pharaoh dies, they considered Pharaoh to be the son of the gods, right? When Pharaoh dies, the myth is there's this eagle that comes and takes this, uh, his dead soul and takes it up to the heavens. It takes it up to Ra, takes it up to this this the gods, uh, the Egyptian gods. And it's the eagle that bears it. But in this, when it talks about this, what is God doing? How I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. He's bringing Israel to himself. He did it through these actions. And he's done it with you in that he gave his son. And so what does he call them? He calls them a treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what Israel is supposed to do. This is what we are supposed to do as a church. We are a holy possession. We belong to him. And we are a kingdom of priests. We have access to God. We we. We communicate with God through prayer. We read His Word. We have access to His Word. We have access to God. And this is our covenant relationship with God. This is our relationship when God says, you know, I'll be your best friend. What did He do to promise that? It's not just a pinky swear. It's not just a signed contract. is solidified in His blood. God has chosen you to be His. Whenever you think about the Exodus, we think about, oh, God brought them out of Egypt. And Exodus doesn't end with the parting of the Red Sea, you know, when the Egyptians are crushed and bam, done. That's only halfway through. 
Exodus continues. What happens at the end of Exodus? He presents this covenant. He gives them this, the Ten Commandments. And then he tells them how to build this tabernacle, this tent, where his presence would come. For the Israelites, it was all about who God is with them. For us, that is what it means. That you are never alone. That you are always His. If you are His, then we need to act in that way. When we think about the people we love, when we think about the people we love, we have a, a different relationship with them from the rest of this world. When I look at my kids, when I look at my uh, son, um, I have four kids, boy, girl, boy, girl. And what's interesting is boy, girl, first boy and girl, when my wife was pregnant with them, I prayed very hard. I prayed, dear God, don't let this child look like me. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm very aware of my looks, right? I was like, dear God, don't let this child look like me. First one's born, and guess what? He looks like my wife when she was a baby. I was like, oh, wow, amazing, beautiful child. I was like, oh, beautiful. The second child is born, the same. Uh, when she was pregnant, I was like, God, please, don't let her look like me. And she's born, beautiful. Doesn't look anything like me. Right? I'm like, oh, man. It, looks, it actually looks a bit like my sister, right? Who doesn't look like me. So, oh. And then I had my third, she was pregnant with my third child, but I was very distracted with the other older two. And I didn't realize I forgot to pray that prayer. <laughs> and so she had a child, a, a boy. A beautiful boy. I was like, oh, so beautiful. And I love him. Instant love. Instant connection. You know, love at first sight is superficial. Love at first sight. I love him. And then I would take him and show him to people. And it was that first person who goes, oh, he looks just like his dad. And then I remembered, oh, that prayer. I forgot. You know, and, but, you know, he's still cute. He's still, you know, it's, it's possible to resemble somebody and not be like, if that person's good looking, you're, it doesn't necessarily mean you're good looking, right? It's funny, I would wear him on my chest and walk around and people would come from church and go, oh, he's so cute. He looks just like you. And I'd go, ah, oh, thanks. <laughs> but that's not what they meant. <laughs> right? It, you know, he could be cute, but... They have a different relationship with me. That child has a different relationship from other people in this world. That child is able to come to me in their deepest need. They're able to wake me up in the middle of the night and say, and wake me up for some mundane thing. I had a nightmare. And guess what I'm going to do? It doesn't matter how sleep deprived I am, I'm going to try and comfort them. I'm going to give them a hug. Put them back into bed and you know if you ever come to my house at 3 a.m. and knock on my door and you know until I wake up and I come and answer and you go oh Pastor Alex I had a nightmare do you know what I'll do you know, be like, I'm calling the cops no, no. you know like it's not right it's not right why would you wake me up Sleep is precious to me. I have four kids, right? But for, for these children, they have a special relationship. There was a, a time when uh, Barack Obama was in office as president of the United States. And while he was in a meeting with his cabinet, a very important meeting about something to do with state, suddenly his daughter runs into the room. Suddenly, his daughter runs into the room, and she had just come home from school. So she runs into the room, having come home from school, and she's like, Daddy, Daddy. And she brings a piece of paper and goes, look at what I drew. And you look at that, and you go, how dare you 
disturbed the President of the United States to show a, a child's drawing, right? Instantly, at that moment, the President of the United States stopped being the President of the United States. Instantly, at that moment, suddenly he became the father of this child. He didn't even say, hang on just a moment. Oh, no, he's like, instantly, oh, let me see this drawing. Gives her a hug and goes, oh, this is so nice. Okay, now you go back to your mother. For that moment, if I ran into the White House, somehow got through security, and ran to the president and go, president, president, I drew you a picture. You know, I get tackled. I get arrested. Right? It's, we don't have that kind of relationship. What kind of relationship do you have with God? Is it a relationship where you, you can approach Him in all your needs? Is it a relationship you can approach Him in all your joys? Is it a relationship where you can approach Him for anything you want? The answer is yes. It is. The question is, do you? Why? Why don't you? When you experience some joy in your life, why don't you? What do you do? You call your friend. Oh, I got a promotion. I got into the school, the uni that I wanted to go into. When you, when you, something terrible happens to you, 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 Go to your parents. Oh, mommy, mommy. You know, he dumped me. Good. <laughs> no, no. You know, like, what? you go and you approach people of, for all your needs and things like that, but what about God? What about God? You will approach God to thank Him for the meal. You will approach God when you know, when everything else fails. God is, you have a relationship with God. Not only when He says, you are mine, know this, that's not a one-way deal. Him saying, you are mine, also means He is ours. He is your father. If you think about how much I love my children, if you think about how much your parents love you, if you think about who's in this world loves you the most, God is the only one. God loves you more. It's not possible humanly to love in that way. And yet, He loves us in that way. If He loves us in that way, it's, it's uneven. The relationship's uneven. My parents love me. And I can say I love my parents. But I know, I can't say I love my parents more than they love me. I can't say I love my mother more than she loves me. I also look at my youngest sister and I go, I love my youngest sister, but I, and I know she loves me, but there's no way she loves me as much as I love her. I look at my kids and I can say, I love my kids and they love me, but there's no way, there's no way they love me as much as I love them. I love God. I love God. When was the last time you said that other than in, in the song? I love you, God. But there's no way, and I know you love me, but there's no way that I could possibly love you the way you love me. But I'll try. Why? Because we are His. Because we are truly loved. 
I'm gonna ask us to pray now. Um, let's just spend a, a few moments just reestablishing this covenant. Throughout the Bible, there are all these covenants where God reveals to somebody or to a group of people uh, His will, His heart for them. And as He establishes this covenant, usually there's, there's some sign, um, there's some sacrifice. God has established a covenant with you. He's called you His holy people, His treasured possession, His kingdom of priests. And as God calls you to Himself, as God calls you one of His holy ones, one of His saints, as God establishes how much you mean to Him, at this time, I want you to, to, to pray, spend this time just between you and God, and ask God to, to show you just what that means. Ask God to um, uh, establish a covenant, a covenant that is made in His blood, in the blood of Christ, a price that was paid on the cross, And as He makes this covenant with you, you are mine. I am your Lord, who brought you out of the slavery of sin and death and brought you on eagle's wings, brought you to myself, so that you are holy. Right now, establish this covenant, establish this relationship with Him. If you've never made this promise to Him, if you've never said to Him, I want to be yours, pray this prayer now. Ask God, ask God to make you His. Thank Him for the, the blood that He paid. Thank, you for the, thank Him for the cross. Thank you for Him Thank Him for sending His Son. Thank Him for loving you in this way. And today, spend some time committing your life to Him. Asking Him to make your life a prayer to Him. Make your life a sacrifice to Him. Make your life holy to Him. Let's spend some time in prayer. And after a few moments, after a few moments, I'll, I'll close us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you did not leave us. You did not leave us in exile. You did not leave us in this world. You did not leave us to be a part of this world in its destructive ways. 
but Lord, that you have called us to yourself. And Lord, as we understand this covenant that you have made with us, calling us holy, calling us yours, at the great sacrifice, the precious blood of Christ. Lord, I pray that tonight that we would commit to you, that we would be people who live not for ourselves, but we would be people who live for you, who live as holy ones, who live as salt and light in, in, in this dark and dreary world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use the saints in this room. You would use them to build one another up. You would use them to reveal your greatness in this world. That you would use them to show this world who you are, the love that you give us. That you would make us different. That you would make us holy. And Lord, as you use these saints, Lord, I pray that there would be a revival in this land. There would be a revival in the places of our work. There would be a revival in, in, in the places where we study. There would, would be revival in our group of friends. There would be a revival in our families. But Lord, I pray that first and foremost that you would revive us and make us holy, make us yours. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.